0: Carlos Rodriguez kicks off the meeting by saying to the company, we think you should be the first in the nation to convert from coal to solar energy on site.
1: How can a community close a coal plant and produce clean electricity, respect the needs of community members and provide a transition for power plant workers? Lena Enton is the deputy director of Toxics Action Center, as well as a board member and former community organizer with the grassroots economic justice organization Neighbor to Neighbor. She tells the story of how a multi-year campaign to end the public health threat from a coal plant in Holyoke, Massachusetts, ended with a new solar array, the state's largest energy storage facility, and several initiatives to help plant workers transition after the coal plant's closure. I'm John Farrell, Director of the Energy Democracy Initiative at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, and this is Local Energy Rules, a podcast sharing powerful stories about local renewable energy. Lena, welcome to the program.
0: Thank you. It's great to be here. I really appreciate you inviting us.
1: Well, I am so glad to talk to you because um, there are so many different communities across the country that are hosts to old power plants, Uh, And many of them are closing down. In fact, 2018 was a banner year for retiring coal power plants across the United States because they often can't compete with renewable energy resources. What has happened in Holyoke, Massachusetts caught my attention because the change was really driven from the bottom up by organizing. I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about how this campaign you were involved in started. And I think it was all the way back in 2010, if I'm not mistaken, that that things kicked off.
0: That's right. It was a long, hard-fought campaign. And so in 2010, Neighbor to Neighbor members, Neighbor to Neighbor is a grassroots organization that builds power in poor communities, working class communities, and communities of color across Massachusetts. And we were organizing in Holyoke around economic justice issues, fighting for local jobs. When we got wind that local activists were considering taking on closing the Mount Tom Coal plant that had been polluting the air for 50 years. And so we learned more about the coal plant and learned that the pollution from the plant gets into the air, gets into our lungs, and can activate asthma, cause respiratory problems, heart problems. And neighbor-to-neighbor members started digesting this information. And Carmen Concepcion said, I carry an EpiPen because... My granddaughter is her allergies are so bad and her respiratory problems so severe that I never know when it's going to turn into a severe attack where I need an EpiPen. And Rosa Gonzalez tells this story of not being able to hold down a job because she's in and out of the hospital so much every summer with respiratory problems. And Virgen Mina Perez talks about her grandson who was born in the ICU for first three months of his life in the ICU with respiratory problems. We quickly realized that this environmental health issue is urgent and it's really at the crux of the jobs issues that we're working on, right? That actually it's this environmental health issue that's keeping people from being at work, for example. So, neighbor to neighbor members decided we wanted to take this on, uh, that neighbor to neighbor members wanted to organize to shut down the coal plant sooner rather than later. And I say that because of what you mentioned, right? That coal plants around the country were starting to go offline. We wanted to close the plant sooner than re- rather than later. And at the same time, neighbor to neighbor members were acutely aware that for example, in Salem, Massachusetts, the coal plant was being converted to a natural gas plant. And Carlos Rodriguez talked about gas pipelines, exploding along the highway by homes in communities in his hometown in Puerto Rico, and was adamant that we would not let this coal plant transition to another fossil fuel burning entity. And at the same time, we also knew that we wanted to make this transition work for the workers and for the town, because Carlos, Rosa, Regemina, they had all lost their jobs, been laid off when their companies moved abroad. Rosa tells these stories of spiraling into depression when she lost her job. And then it was because the state provided job training to transition her that she was able to boost her confidence um, and get back out there in the workforce. And so we knew that we wanted to support the workers and we wanted to work with the town to make sure again that we how this plant was cleaning up. For example, other members, Carmelo Diaz, tells a story of this polluting plant in his home down in Puerto Rico that was simply shut down and padlocked. And whenever it rained, he could imagine the water just pouring through this polluted chimney, seeping into the ground and continuing year after year to contaminate local farmland, drinking water, groundwater, right? And he couldn't bear for this to happen. He said, we need that chimney torn down. We need that plant torn down. We need the land cleaned up. We want access to the water. So from the beginning, neighbor to neighbor members really had this vision of how to take this on. So that's a little bit of the beginning of the story.
1: <laughs> yeah. You know, one of the things I think it was so great about... Your your work with neighbor to neighbor and and neighbor to neighbors involvement is that so many of these stories are just environmental ones, and as you alluded to, this was this was much more than an environmental thing. You were looking at what was the human impact of the pollution, you know, people not able to get to work, people concerned as well about you know what will replace this coal power plant. Can you tell a little bit more about like who was joining? this campaign? Because it, it wasn't just a bunch of environmentalists saying we need to close a coal plant. In fact, you sort of got wind that some environmentalists were working on this, but you know, you know, your organization brought a lot of different people to the table uh, looking at this from all of the different angles, from an environmental angle, from a jobs piece, kind of from a, a, a future of the community piece. Who all were you bringing to the table?
0: Right. What's really interesting is that this was actually the first environmental justice campaign that Neighbor to Neighbor took on. Neighbor to Neighbor was an economic justice organization before this point. And that's really where Toxic Action Center came in, that we reached out to Toxic Action Center because we said, we've worked on economic justice. We've worked on passing bills through the state house, We've worked on local ordinances, but we have never taken on a company, never mind a multinational company, the second largest utility company in the world, right? And that's where Toxic Action Center came in. That Toxic Action Center's expertise is really working with new activists, um, people who are new to, for example, a corporate campaign. And Claire Miller, um, the local organizer, drove out and really walked us through the research that they had done about this company, seeing that GDF Suez actually has a green image online. GDF Suez has wind turbines all over their website. So we quickly partnered with Toxic Action Center, uh, who was able to help us not only think about what a corporate campaign would look like, but also learn from other uh, other local groups that had been working on similar issues. For example, from the group in Somerset, Massachusetts, we learned from activists there that they were a little behind the eight ball when paving the way for the transition. They put worked with the city to put together a plan for transitioning away from coal after the coal plant had shut down or when it was on the brink of shutting down. And we said, you know what? The city council does not see the writing on the wall yet, right? They're not ready to lose this tax base. But this is the moment that we need to work with the city council on coming up with a plan for what's going to happen when and if the coal plant closes down. And then at the same time, we also reached out to other partners. Um, unions, for example, Neighbor to Neighborhood always worked closely with the United Auto Workers, Service Employees International Union 1199. Um, so, organizers for these unions with Jobs with Justice all joined our steering committee um, and agreed that this was really an, enviro- an important environmental health issue. And this helped us then reaching out to the Plant Workers Union. So, again, I told you that story about Rosa, right, who had lost her job and knew that we needed to partner with the workers. So we reached out to the local IBEW union members and set up a meeting, and neighbor-to-neighbor members shared their stories of losing their own jobs. And as you can imagine, the workers were not ready to partner with us. We're ready to shut down their jobs. And we understood. Rosa said, I wouldn't have been ready to partner with anyone, no matter what, who was going to shut down my job. What we did was we just kept fighting for justice for the workers anyway. We called for job training programs, right? And at the same time, together with the UAW and SEIU, we organized a big public forum on blue-green relations. In other words, labor and environment coming together. And we invited local economic justice, environmental justice, and labor activists. Um, We really took a look at we're all on the same side here. How do we partner, even though we can't quite see eye to eye? So, and then we came out with this press release, right, about we want job training for the workers, because that's what had been so important to Rosa. And we get this call from the union steward who says, we don't want job training. You're going to be out there advocating for our demands. Can you get the demands straight? And we said, great. What are they? And their biggest demand.
1: Right? I love that, though. I just had, like, you know, you went out there and you said it, and all of a sudden they're like, well, we don't want you to say those things if they're not what we want, <laughs> exactly. so now all of a sudden they're at the table. I love it.
0: Right, right, exactly. Um, so they said our biggest demand is really a bridge to retirement, because so many of the workers are really close to retirement age, and if that coal plant closes sooner rather than later, we're not going to be able to access our retirement pro- packages, Right. Um, so we incorporated those demands into our message. We wrote an op-ed with those demands. We talked to public officials. We, we wrote a letter to the company. When we eventually got a meeting with the company, we brought forward those demands. So in some ways, though, we, weren't, we were able to partner with local unions. We weren't quite able to partner with the workers, um, but we knew how important it was to continue bringing forward their demands throughout the campaign.
1: I just love that story. I think it's terrific because it's kind of a recognition that it would be hard for anybody to step in and advocate to lose their job. And yet you were able to find a way to identify how you could at least do something for them, at least do something that would have been in that direction once they were willing to accept that that's where it was going, um, that the plant was going to close. Uh, So I just... I think that's terrific that even even though, you, as you said, you couldn't partner with them directly, you did find a way to at least have a conversation about their interests.
0: Yeah, I was really grateful that that one worker was brave enough to give us a call and at least put us on the right track.
1: When we come back, I'll ask Lena whether the hoped-for health benefits and job benefits have materialized. But first, a short break. Hey, thanks for listening to Local Energy Rules. If you've made it this far, you're obviously a fan and we could use your help for just two minutes. As you've probably noticed, we don't have any corporate sponsors or ads for any of our podcasts. The reason is that our mission at ILSR is to reinvigorate democracy by decentralizing economic power. Instead, we rely on you, our listeners. Your donations not only underwrite this podcast, but also help us produce all of the research and resources that we make available on our website and all of the technical assistance we provide to grassroots organizations. and ILSR's other podcasts, Community Broadband Bits, and Building Local Power. Thanks again for listening. Now, back to the program. I really love that the end result, you know, was described by the campaign. There's a beautiful video online, we'll link to it on our podcast show page, about this being a transformation from coal to sol. You know, sol is the Spanish word for sun. Uh, so I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about the end result. So the solar, there's this solar project that has replaced the coal plant, uh, and it's different than just solar. You also There's also battery storage, and it's apparently one of the largest battery storage installations in Massachusetts. Can you tell me a little bit about, you know, this replacement uh, power generation? And then what are some of the community benefits of this? You know, what what did the community get out of this, given this broad focus on jobs and economic development?
0: I think to start at the beginning a little bit around solar, we worked with the city, as I mentioned, to have a transition plan in place and um, worked with our state senator to provide state funding to hire a consulting group that worked with the city, uh, set up three public forums, did a feasibility study. And at each of these public forums, we were turning about community members who were saying, we want renewable energy, we want renewable energy, right? And the feasibility study showed that, boy, solar would work really well because This wasn't woods here because this big swath of land is right on the water. And so there's all these kind of meadows um, and farmland, empty farmland that's not being farmed. So perfect for putting up solar panels. And so we started advocating for solar, solar, solar. When we finally got a meeting with the company, Carlos Rodriguez kicks off the meeting by saying to the company, we think you should be the first in the nation to convert. From coal to solar energy on site, and in fact, the solar field is actually not exactly on site. <laughs> it's a few parcels of land away, but right nearby. Um, so we're really excited that the company uh, eventually agreed with us. Uh, the writing was on the wall; solar was the way to go. Um, and I think the biggest community benefit uh, has been that Holyoke really now has this green image, right? And for a city like Holyoke that has been labeled as the poorest city in the state to be able to rebrand itself and say, look, we are leading the, le- the way in clean energy, that the local municipally owned uh, Holyoke Gas and Electric um, actually has a lot of hydroelectricity um, and other renewable sources. And so for the, then for the Mount Tom coal plant to move from coal coal to solar energy, and then with battery storage, and as you mentioned, the largest in the state, it really um, boosted this image, right, and boosted this picture of Holyoke, gen- number one, being a energy generator, but not only that, a clean energy generator, and of course, the struggle is local jobs, right, um, and so that struggle continues. We certainly um, kept advocating during the feasibility study, and with the mayor and the state representative around how we could find new avenues um, to replace those lost jobs, right? Um, And the mayor would tell you that there are actually a couple of plans in the works that are, in fact, big energy users. (laughs) And so we'll see if those plans come forward. And it may be that Holyoke is now seen as a site of big energy. You want big energy production, you know where to go. You want clean energy production that, you want to be, that your company wants to be connected to, Holyoke is the place to be. So I think in the long run, we may have helped put Holyoke on the map in terms of um, reclu- recruiting employers.
1: So one of the things I was curious about was, you know, in terms of closing the coal plant, there was a really interesting story, and I think it was out of California uh, earlier this year about some a health study they had done after the closure of a coal plant. And they were looking at, you know, is there any way that we can see the impact? Uh, and, you know, you, you've mentioned that the, the asthma and the like hospital visits and, and whatnot were such a motivating factor for the folks in Neighbor to Neighbor who were helping to organize around this. Have you seen results from that? I mean, I think the thing that I was thinking of the, in this story, they said essentially like pre, premature births fell dramatically in this community after like almost immediately after the coal plant closed. I'm wondering, like are people feeling like there was improvement in health? And, and I guess also did the transition plan work? Do you feel like there were jobs created? You know, did the transition for the workers work out well? Were they able to secure retirement or whatever it was that they were hoping for?
0: Right. In terms of the shift, in environmental health. Um, We're really eager to see some of the long-term impacts because we know that over just a few years, it's gonna be hard to see a shift in asthma rates, right? Um, Because the coal plant shut down just a few years ago. Um, But we're eager to see in the next, kind of in the five to 10 year range after the coal plant has closed, what those health indicators will show um, because Holyoke is in a valley. And the coal plant had the mountain range kind of on the backside of the coal plant, really hemming in um, the pollution. So we're really hopeful that we're going to see some big shifts in health indicators. And we don't have those numbers yet, but I'm looking forward to seeing them. In terms of uh, the job story, as soon as the coal plant shut down, we reached out to the workers and said, How can we support you? Um, And their request was for us to talk to public officials. So we talked to um, Mayor Morris. We talked to State Representative Erin Vega to ask for their support and advocating for good severance packages, retirement packages, and particularly this bridge to retirement, which was nowhere in the contract. The bridge to retirement was so critical because, again, many of the, the workers were really close Um, And then for some of the younger workers, there was also nothing about job training in the contract. So I followed up with the workers three months after the closure. And the really good news is that they did win this bridge to retirement. Um, So the worker that I was talking to was thrilled that he had access to his retirement program. And the state representative also secured state funding for job training and the company provided some. So one example is a worker who went off and started his own business that he could have between now and retirement, and you can take a big risk, like starting your own business when you already have a retirement plan in place, right? Um So that was the really good news. The unfortunate news is that the workers were not hired and repurposing the plant. And I know that there are workers who are, I'm sure, still out there struggling um to find jobs really challenging to make a big career shift like that. Um, So I don't want to paint this as the magical picture where everyone's dreams are met, but instead that this transition worked for many of the workers um, and that in many ways this was a best case scenario and that there's still more to figure out, right, in terms of shifting our, um, as we move away from some of these manufacturing jobs, there's still more that our economy needs to figure out.
1: You know, this leads me to I think a really key question, which is, you know, given what you went through in this campaign and the lessons that you've learned here about the difficulty in addressing some of these needs, like for the plant workers, what advice do you have for other communities who are currently hosting coal plants that are, you know, now scheduled to close or 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 are likely to close? What can they learn from your experience in
0: Holyoke? I would say first of all, in terms of these are environmental activists or activists who don't yet have great relationships with the labor community to keep, to be patient, understanding, and take the high road to continue to advocate for justice for the workers, work hard to figure out what their demands are, and to build those relationships, um, and to be patient and understanding and not give up. I think that was the key. Um, again, I know that some workers, I'm sure, are still bitter about losing their jobs, But many, partly because of our support, um, many of these workers um, who, again, did their own organizing and had a powerful union were able to secure some of the benefits they most needed. Um, So that's my first piece of advice is hang in there. We are all in this together. We're all on the same side. Don't let these artificial divides keep us apart. Um, We all have the same vision of that beautiful world that we're headed to that we know is possible. The second piece would be really to learn from other local fights. We learned so much by watching what had happened in Somerset and in Salem. I was so thankful to be partnered with Toxic Action Center, which could connect us with the local activists in these two towns. And we could learn how to steer away from transitioning from one fossil fuel to another like happened in Salem. And we could learn that how Massachusetts state politics worked, right? That one community had secured state funding for a transition process. So that meant that we could go for it too in Holyoke. Uh, so definitely connecting with local activists. And Toxic Action Center, though uh, the organization is, um, primarily in the Northeast. Um, we always take calls from all around the country and are happy to connect and share our story. So please um, find us online and and connect.
1: We'll have a link on our podcast page for folks who want to both see the video and learn more about the story uh, and uh, after they've listened to the podcast, but also if they want to reach out with questions. Um, you led me into one of my last questions, which was about what public officials can do so you mentioned that one of the things you learned there was about how state politics worked. like hey other communities had received funds to help with transition so Holyoke could also ask for that Um, are there other things that state legislators should be thinking about and how they support these transitions you know what what should we be asking of state legislatures in supporting communities making these kinds of transitions and you know and are there also things that local officials should be looking to do as
0: well Definitely. There's a lot that local and state officials can do. And I felt really fortunate at Neighbor to Neighbor that we had been working with our city and local officials for over a decade on economic justice campaigns. So we had built up these um, deep, long-term relationships so that when we brought up the issue of the coal plant, we were really able to partner. And for first-time activists out there who are taking on transitioning away from coal, this could be your opportunity to begin building those relationships. And I would say that in terms of local officials, it was so key that the city council passed a resolution to set up a community advisory group that would oversee the transition process because this meant that regular folks, like one of our members, Carmen Concepcion, was on the local transition committee. And this transition committee oversaw the year and a half feasibility study and reuse study process. And when thinking about our state officials, our state senator was able to secure funding for to hire a consultant to do the feasibility study, right? And um, our state representative was able to secure funding for job training for the workers when the coal plant shut down. And both state officials, particularly our state representative, who is a big um, environmentalist himself, um, state representative Aaron Vega, was all consistently also going to bat for clean energy um, bills at the state house, which actually helped tip the scales for GDF Suez in deciding that they could actually make a profit from converting to solar energy um, because of state subsidies. So I think all of those pieces are key for local officials. And what was great about um, state representative Vega and Mayor Morse and Holyoke is that. Both were really eager and ready to coordinate with community members because community members, we were on the ground and knew what needed to happen. And so by having consistent and strong communication, we were really able to roll out what I in many ways was the best possible transition plan.
1: So what's next for you and uh, for Toxics Action Center, you're now Deputy Director there. Uh, You're still on the board of Neighbor to Neighbor. Are there other plans for uh, organizing around renewable energy uh, as part of your economic justice work?
0: It's interesting that you should ask, because Neighbor to Neighbor and Toxics Action Center continue to partner to stop fossil fuel infrastructure and to move toward clean energy. So on the local level, we're working to stop um, fracked gas pipelines um, from coming in. And on the statewide level, we're partnering together um, for clean energy and particularly clean energy that meets the needs first and foremost of environmental justice communities, um, i.e. poor and working class white communities and communities of color throughout the state. So that's where we are headed next.
1: That sounds great. Well, I look forward to, it in a couple of years, having you back on the podcast to talk about your wild successes uh, in in working to see more of that renewable energy.
0: Let's hope so. I appreciate the vote of confidence.
1: (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Well, Lena, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I really appreciate it. And uh, so glad to share the story of what has happened in Holyoke and hopes that it can inspire work uh, like that in other communities across the country.
0: Great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you spreading the word.
1: This is John Farrell, director of ILSR's Energy Democracy Initiative. I was speaking with Lena Enton, deputy director of the Toxics Action Center, about the successful organizing campaign to replace the Mount Tom coal plant with solar and energy storage and help coal plant workers in Holyoke, Massachusetts transition successfully beyond the plant's closure. You can read about a New York community's similar fight in a story at Grist about the Huntley Coal Plant in Erie County. We've linked to it on our show page. You can also learn what many other communities are doing to advance renewable energy in our Voices of 100% special podcast series, featuring conversations with leaders from cities across the country committed to 100% renewable energy. While you're at our website, you can also find more than 60 past episodes of the Local Energy Rules podcast. Until next time, keep your energy local, and thanks for listening.